Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Dr. Ethan Kapstein. He's a co-director of the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project at Princeton University. He's a centennial professor of international affairs at Arizona State and a well-known author. Dr. Kapstein's books have spanned across all vectors of global affairs, from U.S. foreign policy to democracy the AIDS crisis, national security, and more. In addition to his books, Dr. Kapstein has had a really interesting career as principal administrator for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, an institution I'm very, very interested in. Uh, He's an economist, he's a former banker, and a retired naval officer. Dr. Kapstein's new book, is the subject of our conversation to exporting capitalism, private enterprise, and U.S. foreign policy. Again, the title is called Exporting Capitalism, Private Enterprise, and U.S. Foreign Policy, which explores America's attempts to promote international development by exporting private enterprise. Dr. Kapstein, thanks for being here on Building the Future with Dan Rundy, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Dan, and uh, thank you to uh, yourself and CSIS for all the great work you do in the private sector development space. You've been a leading voice in Washington on these issues, and I hope you keep it up. Thank you. Well, here's what I ask folks when I have folks come on who've written a book. Why did you write your book, Exporting Capitalism, Private Enterprise, and U.S. Foreign Policy? So I have a strong belief in private sector development as a vehicle for economic growth. This is based not only on my academic research, but on experience around the world, studying projects led by either development agencies or multinational enterprises that seek to develop the local private sector. But I came to realize that uh, despite my preferences for private sector development, private enterprise doesn't grow equally in every setting. Some environments are more fertile, more supportive of private enterprise than others. And so as I looked at my own experience and then delved more deeply into historical experience, I wanted to get an understanding of the circumstances under which private sector development thrives, the circumstances under which it is underdeveloped, and try to draw lessons out for policymakers, like at the U.S. Development Finance Corporation that you've worked so much on, who are seeking to promote private enterprise around the world today. So this issue of supporting private enterprise overseas, it's not new. When did it start and why? Okay. And and let me just, uh, before I delve into that question, let me just make one other point about my own interest. And that is, you know, when I studied uh, development economics uh, a century ago in graduate school and, you know, looked at the work of the development agencies at that time, there was very little emphasis on the private sector. If you look at the leading textbooks today on economic development, you'll see very little on the private sector 
or the role of, of private enterprise. It's very statist in orientation, very state-led. And this leads directly to your question about the history. Because in fact, if you go back in time to the immediate post-war period, presidents Truman and then Eisenhower believed that international development would be driven by private enterprise. They did not foresee a major foreign aid program. The Marshall Plan proved to be the exception to the rule. We can talk more about that as we go ahead. There was a very deep-seated belief in the United States that grew out of its ideology, out of its politics, and out of the economics of the post-war period that led policymakers to emphasize private enterprise. So the ideological component, private enterprise is central to the American story. The belief in economic growth is tied up in entrepreneurship and private enterprise. It's a deep-seated part of our ideology. And that leads to three kind of subcomponents. First, the economies grow through self-help, through their own actions. B, that private initiative and private enterprise are the secret to growth. And three, the way you ignite growth is through creating an investment climate that is supportive, property rights, rule of law, that kind of thing. So the US had these deep-seated beliefs in the role of private enterprise. Second, the United States long believed that economic growth cured political ills. Franklin Roosevelt said in 1941, that economic problems are at the root of the social revolution that befalls us today. As he looked out at fascism, the rise of militarist Japan, the Bolshevik Soviet Union, what tied these together in his mind was the economic failures of those regimes in the past and the promise that all of them gave for economic growth. So the idea that the root of political problems is found in the economy, is a deep-seated American idea. The third element was that there was fiscal stringency in the United States after World War II. After all, we had just come out of war. We'd spent billions and billions of dollars. And after the war, Americans wanted to cut their taxes. They wanted to return to their jobs and their incomes, private incomes. They didn't want a big state with big taxes. And so there were fiscal restrictions. So these three factors, ideology, politics and economics converged on a private enterprise-driven solution to the problems that the global economy faced at that time. So if you think about, let's fast forward a couple of years and say, okay, we enter the Cold War. There was significant interest in this. You covered various, you go through the history of this in your new book, Exporting Capitalism, Private Enterprise and U.S. Foreign Policy. And one, several of the case studies are in Asia. One is uh, Taiwan or South Korea. Talk about Taiwan and how, how, did, how did we think about it then? Yeah, thanks. Taiwan actually, for me, was one of the most uh, fascinating case studies in the book because in a sense, it appears initially improbable. At the end of, uh, well, after the Chinese Communist Revolution, when Chiang Kai-shek flees to Taiwan, the United States had almost given up on that island. They looked upon Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT party as corrupt and inept. They believed that if Chiang Kai-shek had only led a reform process in China, he could have circumvented the war, the civil war. And so when he fled to Taiwan, the United States firmly believed that Mao would invade 
and would be successful in that invasion. And the US did not have a big strategic interest in stopping it. As a matter of fact, I have in that chapter a chilling telegram from the US embassy, I think, stating that they were prepared to pack their bags at any moment and flee the island because they anticipated an invasion. What saved Taiwan, ironically, was the Korean War. Because with the Korean War, the United States came to believe that communism would expand internationally if it was not stopped, contained, deterred, obviously in the Korean case, actually faced with military repercussions and engagement. And after that period, Taiwan became a strategic asset of the United States. So now the U.S. is sitting in Taiwan with a regime that it still views as corrupt and inept, but that faces enormous defense burdens because of an impending invasion from Maoist China, an impoverished population, which itself is restive, and perhaps there will be internal turmoil, and a lot of opposition to the KMT regime, even within the KMT party itself. And so this is a big mess for the United States. And the issue it faces is how can it get this country on track in a way that enables it to both defend itself and support its people in a way that diffuses those domestic tensions. Well, what the United States finds, Dan, I found this case particularly interesting because if there's any case where the US exercises leverage over another country, it must be the United States leverage over Taiwan in the early 1950s. The country's broke, it's facing an existential threat, and you would think the US could just, you know, say, jump and you'll ask how high. What it finds instead is a government that has its own interests, its own preferences, and is determined to lead its own economic policies. And so even in Taiwan, in a sense, the easiest case for US leverage, the US has to bargain with Cheng and the KMT regime to develop an economic policy that's acceptable to both sides. And they succeed in doing that. There are several reasons why. One is that the United States, in fact, had a depth of experience with Chinese economic officials. Many of them had been educated in the United States. The United States had officials who had served in China. They knew the country, they knew the officials, and then served in Taiwan. So there was this depth of knowledge and trust which you know, I'm sure later we'll get to talk about Afghanistan, Iraq, other countries where maybe American officials spent nine months, circled in and out, cycled in and out. In Taiwan, you had this breadth and depth of experience and this, this trust that was gained on both sides. The second thing, as I said, is the United States willing to bargain over economic policy with Taiwan. But the third element is that the United States did insist upon the importance of a private sector solution. And the reason why it finally could make that argument to the KMT and to Chiang Kai-shek was that the US said, look, our foreign aid isn't gonna be there forever. Eventually you're gonna be on your own and you're gonna have to develop a self-sustaining economy and that's gonna require foreign investment. And as the United States graduated Taiwan and Taiwan and Korea are kind of exceptional examples of countries graduating out of aid and being faced with that prospect and seeing that they had to reform their economies and attract foreign investment and private investment if they were to continue growing, as they faced that, they did make this shift. Now, what favored 
that prospect in Taiwan. And this is another important lesson. The United States, with the KMT finally learning its lesson from mainland China, engaged in a major land reform program on the Taiwanese, on the island, a major land reform program. And the idea was to move the big landlords off the land and give them shares in industrial companies in return. So what you did was diversify the assets of the elite. What you did then was subsidize their further investment in industry. And the United States supported up to a third of gross capital formation in Taiwan. It's phenomenal. The third thing the United States did was open its markets to Taiwanese exports. So you gave high-powered incentives to Taiwanese elites to move off the land, get into industry, and then eventually move toward export-oriented growth. Later, as those industrials needed technology and more resources, they opened the country to foreign direct investment. And that's what leads to this phenomenal Taiwanese growth that really takes off in the 70s. It's a remarkable story, but one that also suggests the limits of American power and the importance of alignment with local elites if you're going to get policies implemented. It's a fascinating chapter. Your book, which I recommend, is really quite interesting, Dr. Kapstein. Tell me about, let's fast forward a few decades and look at, you know, there we work on these issues across several other countries and cases. Let's fast forward to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And how did we think about it then? So again, let's think about this kind of uh, troika of appropriate term when we think of the fall of the Berlin Wall, perhaps, and looking east this troika of ideology, economics, and politics. What's the ideological flavor of that period? Well, Reagan-Thatcher. We had just lived, and we're still living in the Thatcher case, of a period of intense belief in neoliberalism, in private sector-led growth, in private enterprise. With the fall of the Berlin Wall, for the first time in history, the promise of a borderless world, of a global economy seems within our grasp. That's the ideological perspective that we went to the former Soviet Union with, a belief in neoclassical economics, a belief in the neoliberal or Washington consensus prescription that you privatize and that will lead to growth. And uh, actually a former IMF chief economist wrote some years after the beginning of the transition, Maybe in the late 1990s, he wrote, this is Olivier Blanchard, the greatest puzzle of the transition is why the neoclassical prescription did not work. Why simply freeing markets did not automatically transform those economies. I mean, this suggests to you the power of the neoclassical perspective, that this is the greatest puzzle that was generated by the transition, why that neoclassical prescription did not work. So that gives you a flavor of the ideology of the period. The economics of the period, as I suggested, well, even going back, Dan, to the 1982 debt crisis that afflicted the entire developing world and made it impossible for them to access bank loans, we saw this shift in the developing world, beginning in the mid-1980s and accelerating through the 90s, of dependence on foreign direct investment and plugging into the global economy becoming part of these global supply chains that now are the subject of so much debate. That was viewed as the only way forward 
there was no other source of international capital. Foreign aid was paltry. Bank loans had dried up after the debt crisis. You had to go out and chase that foreign direct investment. And so this was seen from an economic perspective as key. But the third aspect is a little paradoxical, the politics. Because just as this incredible moment emerges when the United States can really unleash capitalism globally, you have a president in George H.W. Bush who has said, no new taxes, read my lips, no new taxes, we're gonna roll back the state. You have a Congress that looks at the end of the Soviet Union as a way to cut back on defense and foreign expenditures on foreign aid. And so again, there's limited appetite for a major US foreign aid effort. So once again, these three factors, ideology, economics and politics converge toward a private enterprise-led solution. And it's interesting in the congressional hearings that led to what was called the SEED Act, the Support for Eastern European Democracy Act, passed in 1989, one of the representatives of business from one of the major business organizations says, wait a minute, we can't be at the point of this spear. There's too much expectation being put on foreign direct investment as the savior for the transition economies. That, that was prophetic. Who, who, said, who was that? It was the head of the National Association of Manufacturers at that time, a quote in 1990, Kempton Jenkins, head of the National Association of Manufacturing. So what you have is a US government saying, oh, you private sector, this is your moment. The world is globalizing. The world's accepted the neoliberal prescription. Go out there and invest. And that will, once the Eastern European countries and then eventually the Soviet Union after its collapse, accept market dictates, well, those economies will take off. End of story. And this is why when Bush, one of the frustrations uh, that officials within the Bush White House had and within uh, some, uh, between the Bush administration, some officials in Congress is, the Bush administration kept broadcasting the ideas, this transition is going to go very quickly. And the US really can only has to provide some emergency assistance here and there. But you don't need a full scale systemic effort to meet this challenge. Now, that obviously proved incorrect. And eventually, a massive foreign aid program was developed in which, by the way, uh, and let us not forget, even though we're sitting in Washington where everything's invented, the Europeans played really the leading role in the financial assistance going to the transition economies, in part, of course, because the European Union envisaged that many of those Eastern European countries would join the EU as members. But um, you know, overall, something like $150 billion was ultimately poured into the former Soviet bloc. That's something like twice the Marshall Plan in today's dollars. And so eventually, because the United States and the Western countries saw that this transition wouldn't be seamless, they ended up pouring massive aid into that region. And that, of course, also helped fuel a kleptocracy in that region, an oligarchy, and several of the uh, ills. Again, can you lay that all on the doorstep of the United States or the Europeans? Of course not. But 
the interaction between these foreign aid programs, the insistence on rapid privatization, which favored those with insider knowledge, and uh, the structure of the elites in that part of the world kind of doomed a market-oriented approach to their economies. So let's move forward yet another couple of decades. Talk about what happened in Iraq, or let's pick one of the two, let's say Afghanistan. And how did we think about economic development in Afghanistan? If you'll allow me, though, I will talk a little bit about Iraq, because the two, in a sense, I think we're, we're related. Because, you know, in the book, I argue, you know, although I have, you know, so far talked a lot about the role of ideology, in most cases, at the end of the day, as this former Soviet case suggests, American officials were not ideologues for the most part. For the most part, when they were confronted with what they considered reality on the ground to be, they shifted their policies. And so, for example, the US didn't like funding state-owned enterprise, but if at the end of the day, the choice was between that and chaos, they would fund state-owned enterprise. They didn't like funding you know, state institutions, but if you needed to, so be it. So in general, over the period of history I'm studying, ideology is important. It you know, kind of provides the guardrails that set the limits of what the US can do. But as I say, officials you know, bow to reality as in that case of Taiwan we talked about. Iraq is a little bit different because once again, when the United States invades and occupies Iraq and Afghanistan, that's why I wanna speak about them in tandem if I might, there's a belief that now, once again, there's a tabula rasa, a blank slate. And the US can build on that blank slate the economy that it wants, a market-oriented economy. In fact, the head of the Office of Economic Policy in the Coalition Provisional Authority, McPherson, was a strong believer Sorry, Peter, Peter McPherson, the former head of AID who was part of the Coalition Provisional Authority. Yes, thank you. Peter McPherson. McPherson was a strong believer that the U.S. had a unique opportunity to destroy the Saddamist economy, the state-owned enterprise-led economy, and build a new private enterprise economy with a lot of foreign direct investment. Now, once again, even after bombing a country to smithereens, after occupying it, the United States still found how sticky local arrangements were. Iraq was a petroleum state with all that kind of natural resource curse associated with petroleum states. It was state dominated. There was very little private sector. The little private sector that had existed under Saddam was thoroughly corrupt and not trusted by the public. So the idea that you were gonna go build a private sector that had no foundation in domestic society proved to be ridiculous. The idea that you would just open the economy to foreign direct investment, well, the Iraqis looked upon that with hostility. They didn't wanna be taken over by foreigners, either politically or economically. And so in Iraq, and still to this day, by the way, Iraq is largely a state-led economy. There is very little private enterprise. There is very little credit to the private sector. The United States really could not move the needle very much in Iraq uh, on that front. Afghanistan was a little bit of a different story. 
It didn't suffer from the same kind of natural resource curse, except for poppies maybe, but it was obviously one of the poorest countries on earth, which Iraq had not been. Iraq was a lower middle income economy because of its oil wealth. Afghanistan was, a, and it had a fairly educated population. Iraq has a fairly educated population. Of course, Iraq was a leader, by the way, in educating women under uh, Saddam. Afghanistan, very different, a country with low levels of education, large scale poverty, very little in the way of enterprise. But what happens, the United States again goes in with a similar ideology that we can build private enterprise in that country. But again, the local politics, where, what do you graft onto? What do you graft onto locally in order to build this private enterprise? And that's, again, the problem that the US faces. Now, to some extent, there are successes in Afghanistan. Notably, you know, for those of us who traveled there over the years, you saw, for example, the cell phone companies take off. You saw other local entrepreneurs take off. And by the way, there were some beautiful handicrafts made in Afghanistan, but US policy was incoherent. So for example, as by the way, had happened in Vietnam a long time ago, the US overvalued the Afghan currency, the Afghani. Why do you do that? You do that to make imports cheap. Why do you make imports cheap? Well, then people with their limited incomes can get more stuff and they think, you know, the occupation, the invasion and occupation has allowed them to do that, to consume more than they were before. But when you overvalue the exchange rate, you're taking in imports and hurting your own entrepreneurs. So to the extent there might have been an entrepreneurial class in Afghanistan, the economic policies weren't really coherent to support it. Obviously, the lack of security was primordial, very hard to develop, and that's one of the lessons of the book. It's very hard to develop private enterprise if you don't have property rights, if you're worried about your stuff getting seized or destroyed, worried about your workers being killed. And so Afghanistan too uh, proved not to provide a very uh, rich soil for private sector development. As I say, nonetheless, you know, there were some sprouts here and there that were growing at the time the Taliban took over. But again, one could not say that it was a, anything like a private enterprise-led economy by the time the U.S. left. So, Dr. Gapstein, what are your so you've you've talked about some interesting case studies that kind of are kind of a mixed bag for our our experience with this. What lessons should policymakers and others take away from this track record? Well, I think it's a great question, and you know, one thing that does worry me, frankly, Dan, is that policymakers may say, "Oh, yeah, we haven't been very good at this, so let's not bother." And that's not the lesson uh, that I want people to draw. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm concerned about broad brush statements about US foreign policy in general, foreign economic policy in particular. It's all this or it's all that. The question I always ask is under what conditions has it been successful or effective? Under what conditions has it not been? And so I would say that it's really hard to develop private enterprise under the condition of violent conflict, that security is primordial. It's very difficult to build private enterprise when you have a rentier state, a state that's dominated by a resource like oil. But in those conditions where you have a diverse set of elites and you can provide a coherent set of incentives to those elites, then I think there's great promise. And again, I think Taiwan you know, provides one outstanding example of that, but by no means the only one. 
I am, you know, worried about the future of private sector development. You know, I heard President Biden's uh, State of the Union address, and the first part was about American leadership and the importance of the allies and the Western alliance. But the last part of it was about buy American. And it's very hard for the United States to play a leading role in the global economy if its economic policy is centered on buy American. So that does concern me. But on the other hand, there are reasons for optimism. The developing world is still growing. It has population growth. It has economic growth. There are entrepreneurs who want to invest there. There's capital that's still flowing there. And so I think you know, private enterprise development is crucial to the growth of that part of the world, but we should learn the lessons of history in order to use our scarce resources most effectively. This is great. What does this mean in the context of great power competition with China? Well, that's, of course, a fantastic question and very much on the minds of uh, policymakers in Washington and something uh, I'm working quite a bit on here at the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project, by the way. But I would say that uh, if you look at, for example, the founding documents of the Development Finance Corporation, an institution you're very familiar with, it is supposed to be one of the leading instruments in the U.S. arsenal in countering China, particularly along the Belt and Road or throughout the developing world. I think that if the United States is going to counter China, given our paltry resources compared to what the Chinese are bringing, then it has to use those resources wisely to promote private enterprise, promote American values. But the U.S. market also has to be open to the exports of those countries. I think Americans have to remember that Xi Jinping, when he spoke at Davos in 2017, he spoke about economic globalization at a time when the United States was turning its back on the global economy. And so to some extent, I do think this is an existential issue. We're reading now a lot about the end of globalization, reshoring. We don't talk much about the consequences of these policies for the developing world, either economically or strategically, much less from an ethical standpoint. And so I think abandoning the developing world, well, that's gonna leave an opening to China, Dan. This is sobering. I really appreciate you coming on, Dr. Kapstein, to talk about your book, Exporting Capitalism. I encourage folks to go out and read. When is the book uh, being released? In May. Harvard University Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 